Our Heavenly Father, you say to us in the Psalms that you're mindful of us. Your mind is full of grace and love and mercy towards us. And you've demonstrated that in sending Jesus to be for us what we cannot be for ourselves. Help us to remove any distractions, to give our full attention and presence to you, that you might do a work of transformation and renewing of our minds today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2016, an up-and-coming Silicon Valley startup founder and executive and design ethicist named Tristan Harris, throw a picture of him up on the screen there, shocked the tech world when he quit his job at Google. Now lots of people quit their job at Google. This is different. Harris was a self-proclaimed software hacking and coding nerd who went to, he studied computer science at Stanford University, went to the famed BJ Fogg's Persuasive Technology Lab, which is known for teaching the techniques of what I'll call psychological warfare, but is known as neurobiological hacking that have now become standard for lucrative tech companies like Google and Facebook and Apple. Now, a little backstory. In 2011, Google acquired Harris's startup called Apture and put him to work on the Gmail inbox team. And it was here that Harris first started to grow concerned about the potential for technology to manipulate people's brains and behaviors. Harris wrote a Jerry uh, Maguire-like 144-slide manifesto titled, A Call to Minimize Distraction and Respect Users' Attention. And he sent it to a small group of friends in Google, eventually leading to a meeting with the co-CEO, Larry Page, who was initially receptive to Harris's ideas. Harris, at this time, also started speaking out publicly and writing and doing interviews, which eventually led him to this aforementioned resignation and to him starting a nonprofit, which at the time was called Time Well Spent, now is known as the Center for Humane Tech. Um, and it's here where he began to lobby for what he called a Hippocratic Oath for tech companies. If you haven't seen the documentary that features him, Facebook, uh, Instagram, basically all the people who've designed and architected Silicon Valley, this uh, documentary is fascinating. It's, it's, it's not the first time I've talked about it, it's called The Social Dilemma. And they interview these people about what's happening with technology right now. And uh, in uh, this documentary and then some of Harris's uh, viral TED, he had a viral TED talk called Do Our Devices Control More Than We Think? Here's what uh, Harris had to say about modern technology. I want you to imagine walking into a room, a control room with a bunch of people, a hundred people, hunched over a desk with little dials, and that that control room will shape the thoughts and feelings of a billion people. This might sound like science fiction, but this actually exists right now, today, is what he was doing at the time. Because what we don't talk about is how the handful of people working at a handful of technology companies, through their choices, will steer what a billion people are thinking today. Because when you pull out your phone and they design how this works or what's on the feed, it's scheduling little blocks of time in our minds. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all the technology we make. And that goal, and hear this, is the race for our attention. Because every news site, every TED Talk, the elections, politicians, games, even meditation apps, Bible apps, he says, essentially, have to compete for one thing, which is our attention, and there's only so much of it. The best way to get people's attention is to know how someone's mind works. Technology is not neutral, and it becomes this race to the bottom of the brainstem of who can go lower to get it. In another interview talking about our phones, Harris likened our, what's been called a digital appendage, our phones, to uh, a slot machine. And the slot machines are one of the most lucrative businesses out there, right? Um, and there's a reason. They create addiction. They capture attention. He says, every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine. Like, think about when you scroll and there's that little window and you're like, ooh, what's going to come up on somebody's feet? What's going on on somebody's Instagram, okay? That's like a slot machine. What did I get? There's a whole playbook of techniques that get used by technology companies to get you using the product for as long as possible. Silicon Valley is programming people, he says. There's always this narrative that technology is neutral, and it's up to us to choose how we want to use it. This is just not true. It's not neutral. They want you to use it in particular ways and for long periods of time, because that's how they make their money. Now, unless you think 
Harris is some sort of disgruntled whistleblower. Lots of people are beginning to sound the alarm. What Harris calls the race for our attention, economists now call the attention economy. They're monetizing our attention. Big attention, not simply big data, is a huge business opportunity and a huge threat to our society, our democracy, and even our spirituality. The algorithms are coming to get us. Sean Parker, a.k.a. Justin Timberlake, if you've seen the movie, uh, founding president of Facebook, had this to say. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while. Because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever, it's a social validation feedback loop. Exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. Now that last line is key to understanding technology and what's different about the new technology, things like video games and apps and smartphones and where the internet is at this moment, um, you know, online gaming and tablets, differentiating between new technology and old technology is all about that last line. And some of you might be thinking, doesn't this just happen in every generation? Why are we freaking out? There's new technology. First, it was the radio. Some of you are old enough to remember the radio and the television. And then the, the, the corded phone came along and everybody's freaking out. It's going to change. Family dinner. You know, like, don't we just do this every generation and we end up adapting and everything's fine? Like, is this talk today, this sermon, just my attempt to kind of play the old grandfather out in my sweatpants in the front yelling, yelling at the digital natives to get off the lawn? Is that what we're doing today? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think this is actually very different, the moment that we're living in. The difference between new technology and old technology really comes down to two things, I think. As I summarize everything that I've read and thought about this a lot, it really comes down to two things, new science and new social architecture, right? New science and new social architecture. We've always had technology, right? There have always been technological advances, in his book, uh, The TechWise Family, which I highly recommend if you're a parent, Andy Crouch, who's kind of a technology researcher, um, very smart philosopher kind of guy, he says we've always had what he calls tools, right? But those are different than new technology. Tools, think about a hammer, it was a, that was a technological advance. A chainsaw was a technological advance. But it required work, right? It required risk. It required creativity. It was often difficult, and it was limited to specific times and places. You don't put a chainsaw, unless you have really big, like, you know, dickies or something on, like, you don't put a chainsaw into your bibs and walk around with them, right? That's really hard to do. The new technology, though, on the other hand, he says, is very different. He calls it easy everywhere. It's automated. It's easy. It's everywhere. It's all the time. And the reality is, it's so pervasive, right? Modern technology has harnessed this kind of invisible, high-energy, electromagnetic spectrum. That's the basic technology. So he says it's literally washing over us and coursing through our bodies at every moment. Scientists, uh, in 2004, they did a study, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. And they found that if you think about the stuff that's put out in the environment, consumed, disposed of, animals eat it, and then it gets into kind of our ecology, he says that they found that 93% of human beings had traces of the plastic compound BPA in their urine. So technology is not just something you do, it is something that does something to you, it's in you. And it's been foisted upon us within such a short period of time, right? Like, like I remember, I'm just old, I'm 42, I'm just a 41, uh, how old am I, 41? Uh, I'm about to be 42. And I remember corded phones having to go, like some of you might just remember having to go and shut the door behind you with a corded phone. Like I remember when I didn't have a cell phone and I wasn't reachable by my parents. I remember like it's not that long ago, right? This has only been 15 years since 2007, which is when the iPhone came out. And it's been foisted upon us within such a short period of time without a lot of reflection and without a lot of rules. And if you're a parent, like every survey tells us that Parents say one of the things that makes being a parent the most challenging right now is technology. It is exhausting. I remember as a youth pastor in 2006 when the iPod was, the, everybody was scared about the iPod as parents. And so we're doing like seminars with parents and it's like, okay, you've got 100 MP3s and you just got to curate that little MP3 list. And I'm like, oh, how naive of us. Like that was so easy to deal with. And now we have online gaming and we have all kinds of things. We have screens that couldn't have imagined. The science is so much different and the social architecture is so much different. By that, I mean like how we use technology and the business models that are driving technology. 
Think about when the iPhone first came out in 2007. Not many people know this, but it, actually Steve Jobs says this. It was originally designed not to be a mobile computer that we carry around in our pockets like it is now. You know what it's designed for? To combine the iPod, a music experience, with the functionality of making phone calls. That's it, that's all it was designed to do. There was no app store. I know some of you are like, what? Like, yeah, there was no app store. There was no camera. There, were no, there was no social media. There was no notifications. There was no texting. There was no universal Wi-Fi, right? Same thing with Facebook. Facebook was invented with a bunch of college students who want to stay connected with their classmates. What they've become now is something I think most people didn't expect and didn't even plan for. The difference now, again, is that these new technologies are being designed, they're being built, and they're being brought to market within a business model that is intentionally employing what some people have called attention engineering, right? That's an important word, intention engineering. The combination of essentially social psychology and neurobiology to target and hijack our brain stems, right? Specifically, and again, if you know anything about neurobiology, I don't, but I'll just tell you what smart people say. Um, there is kind of two brains, right? Your upper brain, which is responsible for a lot of your cognitive processing, decision-making, rational thought, and you have the lower brain, like getting down to your brainstem. That's what uh, Harris was referring to uh, earlier. The lower brain or the animal brain, and that's where your nervous system uh, resides, is housed, your emotions, your bodily sensations. That's where fear and outrage kind of come into your body. All of that's happening in your lower brainstem. And what Silicon Valley is trying to do is to get into there and to steal our attention and to convert it to unconscious and compulsive loyalty to products, companies, brands, to ideas and relationships. That's why they call it persuasive tech. It's why it's called persuasive labs because it's very persuasive, right? And our brains are getting assaulted, right? Like our brains have very limited, if you know how attention works, your brain is like a, a, somewhat like a computer in this sense that it has a limited amount of RAM and it's constantly monitoring short-term memory to see what can I get, what can I offload and what do I need to convert to long-term memory? What do I need to pay attention to? That's called your salience network of your brain. And the salience network functions like a circuit breaker, essentially telling your brain what's important and what's not and where to direct and deploy resources and where to ignore uh, what's happening and to just kind of dump it. So if you think about all that's happening around us with social media and technology, think about the 24-hour news cycle. Think about notifications on your Facebook feed. I mean, they operate off of a sort of like cycle of the sensational, crisis, urgent, exaggerated. Like a calm Facebook feed does not hook your attention, right? Like you never got on Facebook because like, hey, everything's good today, you know? Like, let's not worry about it. No, it operates by an algorithm that bumps to your attention those things that stoke fear and outrage and are going to capture your attention or distraction at the least. They're weaponizing noise, outrage, fear, anxiety. They've convinced us that they're these their technology is so indispensable to our flourishing that we actually, I mean, think about this. We would never imagine this 20, that you wear their technology on your body at all times. Like, we talk about invasion of privacy, and yet we have no problem putting a phone in our pockets that is constantly surveilling us and trying to monetize our attention. There's a great quote in Social Dilemma. Where they said the only industries that call their clients users are illegal drugs and software companies. <laughs> And so there's a big difference between old technologies and new technologies, right? If you think about just the radio or like a corded phone, Harris says the difference between now and then is that then you didn't have a thousand engineers on the other side of the screen surveilling and tracking and trying to optimize your engagement with that technology. That's terrifying. Cal Newport, uh, author of the book Minimal, uh, Digital Minimalism, one of my favorite books on this topic, he wrote the book Deep Work as well, uh, and is a professor of computer science. Here's what he says. He says, previous technologies introduced new ways to occasionally interrupt time alone with your thoughts. Whereas the iPod provided for the first time the ability to be continuously distracted from your own mind. Compulsive use is not the result of a character flaw, but instead the realization of a massively profitable business plan. We've been engaging in a lopsided arms race in which the technologies encroaching on our autonomy were preying with increasing precision on deep-seated vulnerabilities in our brains while we still naively believe that we were just fiddling with fun gifts handed down from the nerd gods. I.e., that's why your apps are free, folks. As they say in Social Dilemma, if you're not paying for the product, you are 
the product. A recent study found that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day. Each user is on his or her phone two and a half hours per day over 76 sessions. Another study on millennials put the number at twice that. That's everybody, all users. Millennials, twice that. And what we need to understand is like the social architecture is really important, right? Because it's not just that we make choices. It's that our choices and our attention are being stolen from us. It is a violation of basic principles of psychology and neurobiology. One author calls this the fracking of modern attention, right? You think about fracking in the oil industry. You, you, You mine previously unreachable reservoirs of energy and you harvest them and sell them for increased profit. That's what's happening with technology. That's why so many tech execs send their kids to device-free, like Walden-like Henry David Thoreau schools, because they know this. They, if, you, if you listen to any execs, cultural elites, they don't want their kids around technology because they've designed and they know how dangerous it is, right? And that's not even to speak about all the rising mental health challenges. I mean, Gene Twins at San Diego State, Sherry Turkle at MIT, less empathy with college students. There's a generational going off the cliff of empathy because we don't know how to look each other in the face and have basic conversations and read people's emotions. We're not even talking about mental health with Instagram and depression and suicide rates. I mean, there is a lot here, but what I want us just to see in this setup here is not that I'm anti-technology, I'm not some kind of Luddite, okay? But what I do want to say and, and, and this is how this connects to simplicity, because you're like, okay, what about the Bible? Where are we? Okay, there is a purpose to this. We've been talking about simplicity. We've been talking about simplicity as seeking first God and his kingdom. Inward simplicity, outward simplicity. We talked about simplicity with our stuff, with our speech. But here's the reality. If we don't pay attention to how we are engaging with technology, you can set up all the systems. You can divest yourself of your possessions. It will sabotage your efforts to seek first the kingdom of God faster than anything else. Digital distraction, in my opinion, as a pastor, as a father, see this as, you know, just as a a citizen, I think it's one of the great mental and spiritual health crises of our generation. We should be just as concerned. I'm concerned about big data. We should be just as concerned about big attention as we are about big data. Even if this isn't something you personally struggle with, maybe I know there's a generational gap here. Some like, I don't even know how to use the technology. I can't be taken over by the technology that I don't understand. Uh, or maybe some of you just about personality and temperament. Maybe you're a contrarian. You're like, I don't even have a Facebook account. Okay, fine. But like, there are people around us that struggle with this. Our community struggles with this. If we, our children, like I'm growing up as a father. I was married the year that Facebook came out. My, my children, my first children were born the year that the iPhone came to market. I'm parenting children who this is the only reality that they know. And if you're going to engage with younger people, this is the reality you're going to have to engage. If you want to disciple people, you're going to have to think about how the digital world is architecting this reality and how we can push back on that and not just go along with the flow of the world. We need to be able to understand this so that we can point people to deeper pathways for human flourishing. See, all of this that I just described to you, this brief history of what uh, Mark Sayers, one cultural commentator, calls digital capitalism, it's all a backdrop. This is all the backdrop of what Paul in Romans chapter 12 calls the patterns of this age. Again, let's go back to Romans chapter 12. Paul spends 11 chapters basically saying one thing, God has been super merciful to you. That's the whole point of Romans chapters 1 to 11. God has been so gracious to save you, to rescue you from your sin. You are loved, you are seen, you are chosen by God. God is doing a work and he's speaking to a group of Gentiles who are feeling like outsiders ethnically and culturally because they've come into something that has this long Jewish history. And so he's unpacking for them the mercy of God towards them in Jesus Christ. And he gets to chapter 12 and he says, therefore, in view of all of these things that I just told you about, the, the beauty and the, the mystery and the wonder of God's grace and mercy to you. In view of God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true or your reasonable or your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Paul is saying to them in verse 1, you are priests. 
This is all Levitical language, right? I urge you to present your bodies in view of the mercies of God. We talk about the mercy seat in Leviticus as a living sacrifice. That's Levitical temple language, holy and pleasing to God, an aroma that comes off the altar up to God and is pleasing to him. This is your act of worship, right? Latro, to, to bow ourselves low and to prostrate ourselves before God. This is your reasonable response to God's mercy. Live your life as a life offered up in worship. And so Paul is moving from theology now to praxis, to ethics. Here's how you live in light of all that God has done for you. And he unpacks in chapters 12 to 16 what it looks like to live a life for God in our relational reality within the church and in the world, right? That's Paul's cry for them. That's his invitation. And it says, do not be conformed. The word conformed is the word syschematizo. It's the word from which we get schematic. Don't be patterned. Don't be, don't allow the schemas of the world to pattern you. Reject their templates. I love the way J.B. Phillips, one old pastor, says it, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. That's what do not be conformed means. And he says something very specific. Just recognize you're always being discipled is basically what he's saying. You're always being squeezed into a mold. There is a pressure, a cross pressure that is always coming at you. Nobody comes into the world neutral when it comes to cultural influence. You're always being discipled. You're always being formed or deformed, shaped or deshaped, right? It's impossible not to be. And so he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this age, this eon, this, this world, some translations say. What Paul is saying is, you have to understand, you, Rome is trying to, he's writing this as a pastor, as a missionary, to an urban congregation experiencing Rome's technologies. Roman, Roman Empire was one of the greatest technological empires, one of the wealthiest empires of all time. And Paul writes to them and he says, don't forget that every technology has an ideology in it. Rome has a very deliberate, immersive cultural system of propaganda that is seeking to take you and convert you from being just a person to being Roman, and that means something in Rome, right? Before you understand what it looks like to be converted from being an American to being a Christian and a Jesus follower, you have to understand that America is trying to take you from person to American, and Rome is trying to take them from person to Rome. And they did that through myth. They did it through story, through imagery, history, art, theater, literature, temples, arenas, shared civic practices, right? It was an ideology and a way of life that was aimed at recruiting people's imaginations, recruiting their desires, transforming their habits so they would be good Romans. Rome had their own version of gospel, right? It was a Roman word, euangelion. It was a gospel. It was a, it was a political and an ideological word. Before Paul could disciple people into the way of Jesus, he had to first discern and name how people were being discipled and formed into the way of Rome. Only then could Paul deconstruct those narratives and those practices and reorient people to Jesus through counter-narratives and counter-practices. So Paul says the danger is if you're not paying attention, if you're distracted and you just pick up your feet and you go with the flow of the day, it's not neutral. And that's the danger. It's so easy to go with the flow. It's so easy to do what everybody else is doing. It's automatic. It's unconscious. It's hidden. It's quiet. You don't understand it. You don't see it. But these are the kind of givens, like the things that seem normal to us. Like when you first got married, some of you guys are married, or maybe like you moved in with a roommate. You know how like you have givens, like that you just assume everybody else does, like how you do holidays, how you do certain things. And you're like, you're so weird. Like Robin was talking about how Soma's weird because we practice membership. Okay, like, yeah, yeah like that's, that's your givens, right? Like we all have these givens that we bring in to um, our lives. And what seems like normal and natural when you're inside the bubble, all of a sudden you begin to realize, oh, that's actually not normal. That's me going with the flow of the spirit of the age. And that's why the New Testament, Jesus and Paul and a lot of the New Testament writers were always saying to disciples of Jesus, wake up. You know how many times, dozens of times, Jesus says, wake up, be alert, don't fall asleep. One spiritual writer says, falling asleep is one of the great temptations and dangers of the spiritual life. Wake up, be sober-minded, Peter says. Be on guard, be on alert, be vigilant, be sober-minded. So just like Paul had to expose the subtle and destructive cultural patterns that were squeezing people into the Roman mold, so that they could, in some cases, consciously reject or sometimes just discerningly leverage. Paul's not anti-being in the world. He's saying you got to live in the world, but don't be 
of the world, right? Be in the world, but don't be of the world. Sometimes that means we reject. Sometimes that means we receive with gratitude. We say, yes, this is good, I'm right, and we can do this. And then sometimes we have to be discerning, right? And we have to redeem certain aspects of our cultural engagement. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to leverage these cultural mechanisms towards God's vision of the good life, we too, like Paul, must discern the cultural patterns of our digital age driven by Silicon Valley. The attention economy, our phones, our tablets, our streaming services, our devices, and understand how they're seeking to squeeze us into their mold. And here's why. And I'm not just talking about, I mean, again, you can talk about pornography. There's all kinds of ways to look at this. I'm just talking about they're stealing your attention. They're stealing your agency. They're stealing your time. They're stealing your presence. I mean, how many times have you been at coffee with somebody when you can't even have a conversation without what Cal Newport calls the quick glance? You know what Sherry Turkle says? The quick glance destroys empathy. Every time you look at your phone and you look away from somebody's face, it's like the conversation has to reset and start all over again. And then there's a buffering period of a couple of minutes before you can get back online. And you think about how many times you do that with your kids. You think about how many times we do that in our prayer life with God. I mean, one of my biggest struggles, and I recognized this a couple years ago, is I could not sit down to pray for like more than 30 seconds without getting distracted. Forget like 30 minutes, an hour. How about 30 seconds without getting distracted and thinking about, oh, I forgot to drop this off or I left my kids out on the street somewhere. You know, I got to buy this thing for lunch. Just get distracted, right? It's, it's so hard to just pay attention. Our attention gets turned away from what really matters. We're distracted into oblivion. It's not so much that we believe the lies of technology. Nobody's conscious to sit around and doing this. It's that we live them. And again, technology is not necessarily the problem. There's all kinds of ways technology's made life better, right? Like, does anybody, I'm not anti-technology. Does anybody want to go back to a world before Google Maps, before Apple Music, before the weather app, before Kindle Books, DoorDash? I don't. I don't want to go back to that world. I'm thankful that we've moved beyond that. So I'm not anti-technology. But again, as a pastor, as a dad, as a follower of Jesus, I am pro-presence and I am pro-attention. Those are the things that I care about. And so I'm very concerned with the ways in which our technology habits and our engagement is undermining our pursuit of the good life as Jesus lays it out. It's not engagement with technology. It is mindless, automatic engagement with technology that is the problem. It is distraction that is the problem and one of the great threats to our spiritual lives. If you think about the opportunity cost of how much time you spend on your phone. Henry David Thoreau, famous for going out into the cabin in the woods, Walden Pond, anybody? Um, and, and building a cabin and seeking to escape kind of the distractions of life. Just for the record, uh, Thoreau, this was not like out in the middle of the woods, like don't think like Brown County. He didn't go to Brown County. Think like he went up the road to a little clearing in the road. It was actually a suburb that was like a 30-minute walk from his hometown of Concord. And he returned like pretty regularly for meals and social calls. What he wanted was a break, not to become a hermit. So don't think of that. But here's, here's what he says about uh, his experiment, what he found to be true about the economics of time when it comes to distraction. He says, the cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life which is required to be exchanged for it immediately or in the long run. If you spend, like the average person, two and a half hours a day on social media, what opportunity cost is that for you? What are you not spending time doing that you're giving to your phone? And if you were to put a price tag on that and just take the average minimum wage, $15 an hour, I mean, it begins to add up pretty quickly. So our problem is distraction. Ronald Rollheiser, great spiritual writer, it says this, we are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. It's distraction that's the problem. And that's why Paul calls them to understand how they've turned their attention away from God. Don't be conformed to that. Don't give your attention to the arena, to the Colosseum. Don't give your attention to uh, the architecture of Rome. Don't allow yourself to be, you know, uh, I don't know what the word is, but don't, don't fall for the propaganda of Rome. Paul says, you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation is the word metamorphe. 
You be transformed, metamorphosis, the inward and real formation of the essential nature of a person. It's the, a term used to describe the formation and the growth of an embryo in a mother's womb. You be transformed. You enter into the womb of God and you allow God to birth something different in your heart and mind, in your life. Have your minds renewed, right? Like every culture has had a, a value on the mind as the place of transformation. The Greeks spoke of, psych, uh, of the psyche. Hebrews spoke of the soul. We talk about consciousness or intelligence or spirit. It's all the same thing. It's, it's, it's the mind that the world is, is after. And Paul says, you can be transformed. You can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This was radical. There were no other philosophers talking about personal transformation from an outside source like Paul in his day. It was absolutely, utterly unique. He calls for a word, renewal. It's a word that is distinct and appears only in Christian literature. Paul's saying, I want your mind to shift away from the mind of a pagan who doesn't know God, from a, a, a fleshly mentality that's typical of sinful humanity and becomes instead a mind that's governed by the new way of the Spirit that's conformed to the image of Jesus. Notice the goal of transformation, he says, so that you would be able to discern God, the good and pleasing and perfect will of God your lives. I want you to see the beauty of God's way. I want you to experience God inside your mind, inside your body, inside your spirit. That's what transformation looks like. So how does that work? I mean, this is, this is simplicity for technology, right? We take this into as a simple Definition, and we see that this is what the ancients have always talked about, right? That essentially what Paul's saying is you become what you give your attention to, right? You become what you give your attention to. One pastor says it like this attention leads to adoration, distraction, on the other hand, leads to deformation. Attention leads to adoration. That's what Paul is calling for here. I mean, think about all the active words, right? You cannot present your body to God. You cannot see and have a horizon for the mercies of God. You cannot renew your mind or discern God's goodwill if you are constantly checking your phone. I mean, if it, if it breaks down empathy between human beings, imagine what it's doing in our spiritual lives and corrupting our soul and our inability just to listen to God, pay attention to him, and to experience his loving gaze in a way that transforms us on a day-to-day -day basis. As followers of Jesus, we must learn to pay attention to what we're paying attention to. This is the ancient wisdom of hundreds of generations. Attention is vital. Douglas Steer, Quaker writer, says, for prayer is awareness, attention, intense inward openness. In a certain way, sin could be described as anything that destroys your attention. So think about that. Sin is not just going out and hooking up with somebody on the weekends. What if sin is anything that breaks your attention to God? That's a different way to think about it. Mary Oliver, poet, says, attention is the beginning of devotion. Simone Weil, the great French philosopher, writer, says, prayer is absolute attention. Charlotte Mason, who if, if you are familiar with the classical school movement, my kids go to a Charlotte Mason school. And one of the basic habits, so this isn't just like even Christians, this is like educators have seen this. Um, Charlotte Mason says this, one of the first foundational habits for uh, the classical school movement is a habit of attention. She says this about attention. It is impossible to overstate the importance of this habit of attention. It is to quote words of weight within the reach of everyone and should be made the primary object of all mental discipline. For whatever the natural gifts of the child, it is only insofar as the habit of attention is cultivated in him that he is able to make use of them. The highest intellectual gifts depend for their value upon the measure in which the owner has cultivated the habit of attention. Anything important to you, whether that's in your spiritual life or your relationships or your job, requires a lot of attention, right? Raising kids requires a lot of attention. Being a good employee requires a lot of attention. Being a good neighbor requires a lot of attention. We become what we behold. We adore what we attend to. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, 
there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is spirit. We're transformed as we behold God. You become what you behold. Psalm 16, the psalmist says like this, I keep the Lord, I fix the Lord in mind always because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So what does it look like to just practically to turn our attention towards God. I want to give you a couple of just quick thoughts, and then we'll close. And I'll ask you to pull out your phones and snap some pictures. It's always too much information, too little time, and I've already stolen a lot of your attention with this sermon. I'm not unaware of the irony of me preaching with an iPad talking about stealing your attention. Here's my simple definition for simplicity. Limiting, notice I didn't say jettisoning, jettisoning, limiting your use of technology so that, there's a so that, and the why matters in order to give our full attention, body, mind, soul, strength, everything, to worshiping God, that's Romans 12, worshiping God, and the rest of Romans 12, 3 through 21, and then up to chapter 16, to becoming people of love. Limiting our use of technology, re- resisting kind of the, the attention economy and all of its digital distraction, in order to give our full attention to worshiping God and becoming people of love. So three just practical things I want to just share with you on this that I've learned. I'm on this journey. I've been working on this for years, recognize this in my own life, and it first hit me kind of in my prayer life. And so I began to kind of pay attention to this and and rethink some things. I've been working on this, but I'm by no means have this figured out. And I I hesitate to even give you a lot of specifics because I don't want this to be like Brandon said, and so this is the way to do it. You got to think about your own season of life, your own personality, your own temperament, your own opportunities, your own, you know, uh, like shadow side and all that. And I, there's no Bible verses on this stuff, right? I can't tell you, here's the verse that says, turn off your phones. Um, but I can tell you there's lots of wisdom out there that a lot of people who've experienced this and who've come out on the other side and experienced some transformation have shared with us that we can learn from. And so I want you to think of these not as, like, please don't go home. If you're a type A, somebody did this a couple weeks ago. I said something, they went home and they're like, Brandon said to their wife. And I was like, please don't do that. That's not, that's not helping me, first of all. And that's definitely not helping you. So this is just me thinking and reflecting on in conversation with lots of other people. Um, Think of this like a thought experiment, just ideas that you can consider as you're thinking about this in your own life. But again, we, we need more than hacks and tweaks. These are not hacks. We need to redefine our relationship. We need a philosophy. We need a vision of life. We need a nexus of practices in the context of communities of real people if we're going to resist what one author calls the colonization of our minds, right? Like we are going to have to do some work, but I want to just give you a couple of things to think about. First thing, reclaim your attention with a digital fast. Almost every single author talks about the need for what Cal Newport in Digital Minimalism, which I, again, highly recommend this book, um, he calls it a digital declutter or a digital detox. You cannot just tweak your way to this. Your brain is biased against you succeeding, right? So we need to take a step back. Think about this as a spiritual act. Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Think of this as an opportunity. In the Old Testament, they would consecrate themselves to God. They would set apart their bodies, their clothing. They would literally baptize, dip, immerse their spoons and their forks. They would consecrate themselves to God in order to prepare to attend to God at Yom Kippur and the important high holy days in the Jewish calendar. This is a similar kind of thing. We just call this a digital fast, right? Fasting, Richard Foster says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. You will, in trying to detox, just like detoxing, if you went to, if you were a drug addict and you had to go to a recovery center, man, those first couple of days, you begin to see how compulsive, how it controls you. You begin to understand how hard it is to push back on these forces and the addiction, right? And you should expect that if you do a digital fast. Every year, and I hesitate to say this because, again, Jesus says, uh, don't talk about your fast publicly, but I want to talk about this because just to encourage you. Um, But like, I've been doing this for the past couple years, taking the Lenten season and just doing social media fast. It's essentially removing every non-optional technology, which is about 90% of what we use. I'm not talking about like, don't lose your job. If you're like a social media person, I'm not talking about that. It's a non-optional technology, apps, you know, online gaming, things like that. You remove them. Just expect it to be really hard. I mean, you don't realize how addicted you are until you try to stop. Just pick it up. I mean, like I find myself like... um, 
my football coach in high school, uh, my freshman football coach, he had lost a leg, kind of knee down, and he would sit, I remember like uh, freshman football practice, like looking over and Coach Stammerman's over there with his cane, and he would like scratch the ear, like the phantom leg phenomenon is like a thing, like me- medically. You will have the phantom phone. You ever had that where like you think your phone's actually beeping in your pocket and it's not vibrating, but you're just so used to checking it? Like that stuff will happen. You should expect it to be hard. You should expect distraction in your prayer life when you try to give yourself to, to prayer. And I want to encourage you, that's normal. Failure, you should expect. You should expect boredom. I tell my kids this all the time. They're in this service. They're probably tired of hearing me say it. We, we kind of power down. We swing from like, we're just going to do everything with technology to like, we're throwing it all out the window. You know, like we kind of just swing back and forth trying to figure this out. But, but my kids, when we, when we take technology away, the, the number one thing they say is, dad, we're bored. And I'm like, yes, that's the point. Now go outside and figure it out. Creative solitude is part of growing up and being a mature adult, is learning how to engage your boredom. Blaise Pascal, the Christian philosopher in his classic work, Ponce, says the only thing that consoles us for our miseries is diversion. And yet it is the greatest of our miseries, for it is that above all which prevents us thinking about ourselves and leads us imperceptibly to destruction. But for that, we should be bored, and boredom would drive us to seek some more solid means of escape. But diversion passes our time and brings us imperceptibly to our death. Normalize boredom. It's okay. No, you're going to fail. You might binge a couple times. It's okay. But use that time to clarify what really matters to you. Clarify your vision for your life. What kind of person do I want to become? Clarify your values. Clarify your priorities. And then think about how is my use of technology helping or hurting this vision that I have for my life? Okay? Secondly, reorient your attention to God, to other people, and to beginning to live a a flourishing life again. Fasting without feasting is dangerous. This isn't just about starving. This isn't just about detoxing. This is about transforming your life and your relationship to technology. But it's about things that you care about, right? Again, simplicity is not about simplicity. Simplicity is about seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Paul says, this one thing that I want to do, pursue God with reckless abandon. Forget all my past and give myself to running towards the kingdom of God until God calls me there. Reorient your attention to God. Take the time that you would have been spending on your phone and begin to reorient yourself to God. Pray. Get up in the morning. Use this rule of life. Take, again, I challenge you, it is so hard to pray for two minutes. Let's just not start with 30. How about two? Every time you get distracted, Spiritual writers say, don't be frustrated. You should expect to get distracted. Every time you get distracted, it's an, oper- it's an invitation to return to God. A thousand distractions, one writer says, are a thousand invitations back to the presence of God. So I try to wake up every morning, and I just say the Jesus prayer. It's an ancient prayer. It's been around, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And I just sit in that, and I repeat that, and I get distracted. And I have to come back, and I say, Lord Jesus, Son of David. I mean, it's amazing. It takes like 10 seconds, and I'm already thinking about something else. But that's all that it is. It's fighting for attention. It's fighting and recognizing God has given me his full attention. So what would it look like for me in the morning to show up and pay attention to God who's already paying attention to me? That's all that prayer is. It is returning the loving gaze and attention of your Heavenly Father and just showing up. You don't have to say a bunch of stuff. Pray what you can, not what you can't. Just show up. You, you pray. You Sabbath. Give that time to solitude. Go take a walk and pray. Give that time to fasting. Think of it like building a fire, right? It just start with an ignition, a little spark, a little time, a minute, two minutes, five minutes with scripture in the morning. And, and over time, you begin to build that fire. You add kindling and all of a sudden you begin to add logs. And 30 days from now, you find you've got a bonfire burning inside of you where you are able to listen to God and respond to God and what he's doing in your life. And that bonfire burns not just for you, but you're actually inviting neighbors and friends to come and be warmed by the bonfire of God's love in your life all because you've taken just a fraction of the two and a half hours maybe you were spending on binging uh, you know, Netflix or whatever, YouTube rabbit holes, and you just said, I'm going to resist that and try to give my time to God. Give that time to other people, right? Reclaim, as Sherry Turkle in her book says, conversation. Cal Newport says, stop clicking like so much. Why? Because when I click like, I, I think that I'm connecting with somebody, but I'm not actually having a conversation with them. 
Clicking like deceives me into thinking I'm making meaningful connections when I'm not. Text messaging, not a meaningful connection, not a conversation, not a substitute for conversation. Now, we've grown so used to texting that we don't know how to have conversation, which is why a lot of us text. You're like, it's just not worth the effort. It's weird. I don't, it's messy. Okay, that's human life, right? Like life is messy. We've got to learn how to have conversations with each other, right? So let's reclaim conversation. Let's get out and serve our friends and our neighbors. Let's, let's, let's rediscover a flourishing life, right? Like, like get out and, and engage in high-quality leisure, right? Build something, fix something, be active in the world. Like use some skills that are, required in the real world, courage, wisdom, join something, get involved with something, right? Like these, that's high quality leisure. Low quality leisure is click, scroll, doom scroll. <laughs> now, and now again, I'm not against that, but why don't you batch it? You're, you're familiar with batching? Like take it all and just say, here's the container I'm going to put it in. It's, batching is going to happen between 9 and 9.30 at night. I'm going to return all my text messages. And don't tell me that it's unrealistic. I was talking to a CEO of a company in our church earlier and he started doing this in his company. It's possible. He's doing this with his employees, changing the whole culture of how they're, how they're engaging with technology. Now, again, some of us don't have those choices, but we do choose how often we return to text messages. You might need to tell somebody, hey, I'm not dead if I don't respond in, in 30 seconds. I'm, I'm, in, I'm rethinking, reimagining my relationship with technology. But I just want you to know I'm not going to respond until 9 o'clock at night. Batch your social media use. For me, I get a, a daily little, like, 10 things, uh, a little update on what's happening in the world. I read that quickly. I, I save most of my, like, essays and, and just other reading, uh, new stuff, for, like, Friday late or, you know, Saturday morning. I do it all in that, most of it in that window, and that's it. I want to, just so you can take a picture of this, I want to show you this uh, wisdom period, uh, pyramid. Brett McCracken has this great little pyramid if we have, uh, oh, nobody's, nobody's back there. So, uh, we have this wisdom pyramid that I want to show you. Oh, man, Isaiah. I think somebody's up there. Is somebody up there in that booth? Can somebody, I really would love to show. Oh, there, there he is. Can you tell that pyramid up there? Yeah, that's awesome. Um, there it is. It's really good, so I want to show you guys. Um, this is just a way that you can think about filling that time. Because again, just fasting without filling it and feasting is going to be bad. Um, third thing, lastly, quickly, um, intentionally curate your technology using a digital rule of life. Rule of life. We talk about rule of life here, a set of practices empowered by the Holy Spirit, commitments, ways you want to live intentionally with your stuff. The Amish have this, by the way. The Amish get a bad rap for being anti-technology. They're not. They actually use lots of technology, but uh, when new technology comes out, they let somebody else experiment with, with it for a couple of years, and then they decide if they want to adopt it, and then they either reject it or adopt it with lots of caveats and limitations on how they're going to use their technology. It's called Amish hacking. I love that word. Andy Crouch has a list. I can put that up here for you if you want to see Andy Crouch's list uh, in his TechWise commitments. Again, I don't have time to go through that, but that's another example of a rule of life. Some ideas that have been put out there by people in terms of how we begin to add back technology at the end of a fast, if you wanted to do that. You could think about a digital Sabbath. Literally take your phone, put it away, turn it off, put it away while you're Sabbathing, or put it in a place where you can't get to it. Minimize apps and notifications, right? Notifications are those things that capture your attention and, and activate your brain's sense of urgency, right? So be careful about apps and notifications. There's a couple of really good apps out there. Freedom is a great one. Uh, you can use Focus or Do Not Disturb. Maybe I've started to just do Do Not Disturb is my default. And then you can actually filter that and let who you want in in terms of the apps, notifications, and things. So it's not an all or nothing. It's not a binary, right? Um, no device zones in your house. So like for us, we don't, you know, have let the kids just be in their rooms on phones, on tablets, things like that. Again, people have different opinions. But for us, it's not just about the worst of the internet. It's just more about their attention and then them not being present with us as a family together as we gather for meals and we try to build a life together. Okay, so again, lots of different things here. I'm done. I'm out of time. I want to transition us to communion. And I want, this is our practice this week. We actually have for you in the practice guides that you'll get if you're in missional community discipleship groups, we have practice guides that will help walk you through a digital fast, if you want to do that, and building just a really simple, basic digital rule of life where you ask the question, who am I becoming? Who, who am I becoming? How is technology helping or hurting that? And then you begin to think about what are some simple practices and rhythms that I can embrace that might help me have a healthier relationship with technology. Now, as we close, we put away our stuff. I just want to invite you to communion. And I want you to think about communion as God being fully present to you. 
God inviting you into this process that Paul says begins with attention and offering our bodies to God as living sacrifices and ends in worship and the resistance of not being conformed to the patterns of this world and the opportunity to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, giving God our full attention as he has given his attention to us. That's communion, right? And so I want you to imagine just for a second, I want you to imagine the kind of person that you want to become in the future, Tomorrow, next week, next year, 20 years from now. I want you to imagine a person that is a non-anxious presence, who's able to be fully present to God, fully present to their neighbors, fully present to themselves, who shows up well in reality. And I know that it's hard work, right? Transformation is hard work. It's painful. It's slow. It forces us to confront inner demons, and I know that. But here's the good news of Jesus that's offered to us in communion. The gospel, the good news, not of Rome, but the good news of Jesus is that God loves you. God is paying attention to you. He is mindful of you. He loves you so much that in Jesus, he has entered into the world. He's entered into our material reality, into our real ordinary lives, and he offers us forgiveness of sin. He offers us the full attention of God. He offers us the presence and the power of God, and he offers us the opportunity to be freed enslavement to anything that would distract us from a flourishing life with God. He frees us to live fully present to him and fully present to other people. That's the vision that I want you to keep before you as we think about coming to communion, grabbing onto the body and the blood of Jesus as God's full presence to us in Jesus. Full forgiveness, full love, full safety, full embrace and acceptance. And now with that in mind, let's pray. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to take communion with us here in just a moment. You can take the bread and the cup as it comes around. And I want you just to take some time to confess your sin, to cry out to God for salvation, for deliverance, whatever it is God is inviting you into today. I just want you to take a moment to do business with God, to put your trust in him, to respond to what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. And then after that, if you're, not, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you to not do that as others come. We're glad that you're here. This is a family meal to be shared by disciples of Jesus. After that, we'll sing together. One more time, and then we'll send you out with the benediction. So let me pray over us, and then we'll take communion. Father, thank you for this invitation into transformation, the renewal of our minds. God, open up our eyes to see the ways that our attention has been subverted, that we are just so prone to distraction, so prone to the patterns of this age which seek to undermine our ability to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. God, would you just open us up to however you want to change us, whatever your invitation. I pray that this would not be felt as a judgmental, shaming conversation, but God, just one of an invitation into life, the true life, the life that is really life, the abundant life that you've come to give to us in Jesus. So would you do a work in us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.